prosecution outlined how accounting practices what fuck? What? did not What kind of likeness is that? If they were great artists, they'd be in a museum. I'm fucking fodder for cartoonists now. to another episode of Gutter Boys. Gutter Boys is a small press comics podcast about the ins, the outs, the highs, and the very deep, endless lows of making comics. I'm your host, JB, with my co-host, Cam. On today's episode, episode 64, we're joined with C.M. Campbell, Columbus-based cartoonist and a professor of comics at Columbus College of Art and Design. While we did get to hang out over in uh, Hocking Hills during the cartoonist retreat, we unfortunately were unable to record our interview there, uh, but luckily Craig was nice enough to uh, do an interview remotely, as we usually do, I guess. We talk quite a bit about his history with comics and academia. It's a solid conversation. I, I really dig this one. Uh, but before we get into that, we have some uh, quick news slash shout outs. Uh, we don't have a lot of news actually on this one since we're recording this way in advance. Uh, the holidays are upon us, so I'll, you know, I'll be gone. I'll actually be in Louisville for a short time before making my way down to, uh, to Florida. Uh, so we're not going to really cover uh, breaking news on this one. Actually, the only news here, here's the news for this episode today. Uh, if you, if you've listened to the show recently, I have a job at a bookstore now. And this lady comes in, she was old, like asked for a senior citizen discount. So, you know, over 65. And I noticed that she bought the Sopranos family cookbook, right? So like, I'm ringing it up and I'm like, I just love this show. And she's wearing a mask and she's like, oh my God, I just love it too. It's my favorite show. And then she pulls down her mask, looks behind her, like just to make sure no one's listening. And then just goes, it's a shame what happens to Chrissy though. And then puts her (laughs) mask back up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it's just like why did you take the mask off like look behind i mean you know good good on you for not spoiling it which i guess you know maybe we should add something that says this spoils the no, fucking no, show no, no. but i don't uh, think so yeah, that's fine yeah but it was so fucking funny so that's that's the news for today that's uh all that happened uh in my life <laughs> i like she had to tell that to you like it was a secret <laughs> yeah yeah that's great well shout out to that lady she seems pretty yeah. cool yeah, cool-ass old lady. Uh, in terms of shout-outs, uh, we did get our package from uh, supporters of the pod, Silver Sprocket. Shout-out, Avi. Cam, you want to go ahead and uh, list off uh, what we received? Alrighty. So, yeah, uh, Avi was very kind to send another package over to us. It's always a good day when uh, I get a Silver Sprocket package in the mail. And I was really hoping this book would be in there, but he sent over the uh, new Fun Girl book, which was a longer edition of uh, that character who had the free comic book day story that we covered a few months back. That's by Elizabeth Peach, I think. P-I-C-H. We also got Emotional Data by Abby Jame and uh, Demons to Earth and Back by Hyena Hell. And um, to be honest, I mean, you got these books... They were sent to us both separately, so I haven't been uh, hoarding them for you. Production-wise, 
Sprocket's going crazy on the spot gloss, and I fucking love it, dude. Yeah, yeah, it looks real slick. Yeah, it's real nice. Like, uh, there's, you know, the fun girl uh, font is barely legible unless you, like, hold it in the light, and then it sparkles with, like, actual glitter. Same with this emotional data book. And then what really uh, is awesome is because, you know, they've got these books with, like, this incredible production value. And then you look at, like, Demons, which is, you know, a black and white mini comic that still has incredible production value, but it still, like, looks just like a mini comic. But yeah. the feel of it is very nice. So, Fun Girl is uh, one of my favorite books of the year. I'm going to put that spoiler alert. It's uh, on my year end list. If you're uh, subscribed to Pimp Digest, you'll see that in there and uh, some words that I have to write about that. And um, I'd never read Abby James work before, but um, it was really funny. I had noticed that uh, they had quite a following online. So uh, I guess I'd been uh, sleeping on them. So, yeah, big thanks again to Avi. We really do appreciate the support. And uh, we uh, you keep sending us those books and we'll keep reading them. So thank you. Yeah, and you could uh, check them out at www.silversprocket.net, or if you're in San Francisco, uh, they have a store at 1018 Valencia Street, and, uh, you know, Silver Sprocket rules, like they say. Yeah, tell them the gutter boy sent you. Yeah. And uh, before we get into our interview with CM Campbell, we got to go ahead and pay the bills and keep the lights on. If you want to support us on Patreon, you can go to gutterboys.top or patreon.com forward slash gutterboys. We do at least two episodes a month that are not on the main feed. We did a really cool one uh, last week that was all about printing and the printing process with Sean Knickerbocker. A lot of the times uh, they're not so formal and educational, but um, sometimes you find some gems on there like that. Uh, you can also get a zine pimp digest by subscribing to our $10 uh, physical tier 15 if you're international. That features work from JB and I plus a uh, column right now by Jazz Heiss and interviews and so forth. Uh, subscribe by December 1st by the time this episode airs if you want to get the year end issue, which features uh, writings and lists of things that we like throughout the year. And uh, yeah, we appreciate everybody who does subscribe to that. You know, it's Thanksgiving or it just passed. And uh, yeah, we're thankful for the listeners and uh, to our patrons. So if you support us, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, do you have anything you want to add to that? Gobble, gobble. Hell yeah. All right. So uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be joined with CM Campbell. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Rust Belt Review is a quarterly comics lit magazine featuring serialized and short form comics from some of the most exciting cartoonists in the small press scene today. Volume 1 features work from Gutter alums M.S. Harkness, Audra Stang, and Caleb Arecchio, along with work by Andrew Greenstone, Sean Knickerbocker, and Juan Jose Fernandez. You can order your copy of Rust Belt Review today by going to rustbeltreview.org. Enter in promo code GUTTER to receive two bucks off your order. Again, that website is rustbeltreview.org. Promo code GUTTER. Reverend. Oh, happy Thanksgiving. Model, who needs it? Oh, come on, turkey, sweet potatoes, pumpkin pie, you gotta love all that, huh? Oh, yes, because you never lived through the Y.O. version. Major antipas first, then soup, meatballs and scarole, then the baked managot, then the bird. Oh, I, I love managot. <laughs> Turkeys are here. Thing with turkeys, they got no sense of direction. They're on their way to Food Emporium, and now look. <laughs> now, back to our program.
All right, welcome back from the break. We are joined with Columbus, Ohio-based cartoonist C.M. Campbell, or as we uh, affectionately know him as Craig. Uh, Craig, how you doing, man? Uh, doing all right. Just uh, enjoying the evening. As one does, yes. <laughs> <laughs> are you uh, doing the winter retreat, Craig? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be there. Are, are, are y'all gonna be there? Well, I might show up for like a day or two, kind of like, uh, you know, at the end, um, just because I'm only a few hours away. But I started working a job, so I can't swing it so close to the holidays. Um, but I'll definitely be at the summer one. All right. Yeah, I know Valentine's is a huge day, so I imagine. Yeah, uh, I think JB will be back next summer with me as well, right? Aren't you? Yeah, going next yeah, summer? I'll definitely yeah. be there um, if MS will have us. Yes. Yeah, yeah. If we're not banned by then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah right. <laughs> no, I, de- I definitely. Uh, I look forward to it. It was a, a really amazing experience this last time. Like, uh, I, mean, I mean, we got a chance to sit in a circle and powwow and talk about all this stuff. But like, uh, oh man, that was great. I, I was into it. <laughs> Yeah, it was a it was a really good experience, especially like as time has passed. Uh, it was a very valuable uh, time for me, you know, in hindsight. So uh, I definitely encourage anybody, if able, to attend to attend. Yeah, no, it was great. Uh, I know we always talk about how uh, working cons and you know comic events and tabling in general is sort of like uh, an adult summer camp, and this was literally an adult summer camp. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, it was really great. I, I think also, and I know we talked about this, but you know, the fact that most of us who are so used to seeing one another at events and shows being on a hiatus because of COVID and not seeing each other for one, maybe two years, I think that also kind of made it more special in a way, just because, I don't know, it's been so long since most of us had been around other cartoonists and really like talking about this stuff. For sure. And I actually kind of want to talk to you about that, Craig, because you may have had an, you know, an opposite experience from that, because one thing that I noticed being on the trip was how rich of a scene Columbus is. And, um, you know, you work there, you teach comics there. I know, you know, obviously social distancing and everything, but did you feel isolated living in such like a populated area comics wise during the pandemic or was it manageable because, you know, the the scene there? Well, I mean, it's a it's an interesting timeline. I I think because uh, I arrived in Columbus, Ohio, August 2019. Just got a job over at CCAD teaching comics. Love that job, and I just kind of jumped on in. Started teaching, and CXC was in September, late September, early October, and so I'm just like swimming in the comics, just like the lavish lifestyle of of a comics artist who could pay rent, and. uh then within six months, everything just kind of shut down. And so I had this like, uh, it was almost like a, a, just a window of time to really fully feel it. And then actually, I, I think that was one of the really special things about the retreat because this year the retreat happened and then CXC happened. And so this felt like a, like a beginning of, uh, like a catch up for me being in Columbus. Luckily, I've been, I had like tons of support from locals and MS moved to Columbus and there was a lot of really, uh, like, uh, fantastic people. But still, like, I felt like, uh, that retreat was like the jump start to that kind of vibe again. So I was as, uh, welcoming of it as I imagine much of you were. It, it still felt new to me. It still feels, all of this actually still feels very new to me, uh, ever since like 2019. Hell yeah. Are you uh, back to in-person classes right now or are you still doing them virtually? Yep. I'm uh, in-person. I do my lectures like Bane, just with a mask on and grandiose hand movements. Uh, (laughs) So 
teaching's been great. Still not as everything's not as you know. I guess normal's not really a thing anymore. You know. Well, we'll see what what it turns into. But like right, uh, the new normal. Yeah, that whole new normal concept. But hopefully things start easing up. Some of the newness of the 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 state of existence <laughs> wears off, and uh, I get back into the swing of things. I, I I've been enjoying teaching. The classroom has been a fantastic place. Can't wait to see like students' faces again. I think is the big deal. Yeah, yeah. I imagine that makes quite a world of difference. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's kind of what I imagine, like uh. Like Immortal Combat, you have like Scorpion and, and, and Sub-Zero and, and Rain, like all of those characters with masks. I imagine it's like teaching at whatever school they all went to because it's just like, <laughs> like you can't tell them a difference. You wish they wore different colors or something. You're just like, I guess you. Yeah. But- <laughs> <laughs> Name tags would come in handy at that point. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, I wish I could require like a consistent hair color. Like, no, no, no. Once you pick a hair color at the beginning of the semester, you have to stick with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I have quite a few friends that, you know, teach either, you know, high school or college. And uh, I, I feel like having to keep track and memorizing all the students they have over, you know, such a short period of time every year. Everybody seems to have like quite a difficulty with that. It's not something that they get used to, but uh, they manage. It took me about a month, but I got all 80 names locked in. Jeez. Yeah, that's, yeah. I have a hard enough time remembering people's names when I meet them one-on-one, let alone in a room filled with like 40 plus of them. Yeah, no, it's uh, <laughs> it's a skill set, I think. I, I don't think I've ever been good at remembering names. And uh, suddenly it's become a lot easier. Actually, I think it was at the retreat that I figured, I was like, how did I learn everyone's name so quickly? This has never been a, uh, an issue for me. Right. I've always immediately <laughs> forgotten everybody. But for some reason, I think that's just now a thing I do. Remember names. I'm sure I forgot like a bunch of names of people who were important at some point. You know, whatever. Right. Yeah. Sink or swim and you're swimming. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's been all right. Yeah. Well, talking about teaching, uh, let's get into sort of your early years of uh, getting into cartooning and comics in general. So where did it all start for you in terms of your interest in comics? I think initially I was into a lot of uh, just, you know, like cartoons, Ghostbusters, Transformers, 80s cartoons were a thing. And uh, at some point, my uh, older brother, Greg, mm-hmm. uh, who's two years older than me, he got into sports and got into trading cards. And my dad wanted to facilitate that experience for him. And so we would go to uh, a comic book shop and, uh, you know, they would be very much getting like sports cards back when I think that was just a much bigger deal. Do people still do that, by the way? Like uh, Yo, basketball yeah. cards? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, for God. sure. <laughs> Actually, wow, more so okay. now. It's in crazy the last right now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> are they still making new ones or are they just trading old ones like No, currency? the the new ones are crazy. Like people like, um, yeah, Target stopped selling them because like people were assaulting the employees over cards <laughs> um, trying to get them. So they're back in a, a very big way, like to the point where, I mean, I was involved, you know, with trying to collect them for a while. You buy a box of them for 20 bucks at Walmart. It's immediately worth 75 to 120 on ebay oh it's my cr- yeah it's crazy like unopened it's crazy right now yeah pretty nutty okay well uh, something to keep in mind no concerns about nfts the market is clear yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or nfts are simply an extension of just how absurd this has gotten yeah probably oh. so if I could invest in insanity, 
I think it'd go up two points on the Dow this year. Oh, I'm not having no me? doubt. Yeah, and, and this is only getting crazier. <laughs> yeah, no. hands down, utter madness is the new khakis. Uh, maybe yeah, the new. They were yeah, big yeah, in yeah. the '80s. In the '80s, but uh, I, I would. I, while my brother got basketball cards, I would, I would get comics. I would just wander around and look at different comics and. By the time we were old enough to get bikes and just ride around town, we would always swing by the shop and I would look at the comic books and he would look at basketball cards. And I was, it was uh, around spawn time. I think the, it was, uh, I think issue three or four or something was my first comic purchase. It's so funny because, you know, just talking to different cartoonists, and it, it's our age, of course, but it seems like that image boom was really big for a lot of the guests that we talked to. Like, do you think it was like, you know, right time, right place, lack of, you know, ability to diversify entertainment in the sense of, you know, everything's so niche now and go out? Like, do you think we'll ever see a boom in comics like that again? Or what do you think, you know, made it to where that was such like an interesting time and a gateway for so many people? My best guess for image and I genuinely believe it was just the sex and violence. It was mm-hmm. everything that, like, uh, I think I was told I should like. And uh, I mean, I, I'm sure there are some synapses firing and some serotonin pumping, but like, it reminds me of like, uh, like Conan the Barbarian. It's like, you know, Frank Frazetta uh, images are muscular dudes and who are all, like half naked, really like narrow waisted, big breasted, big booty women who are 80% naked. Uh, and uh, 90s comics were like that with guns, which I think is just like a solid pitch in the 90s where you just don't have the internet and you are 10 years old and you just have a little bit of money. And the person running the comic store is the least responsible adult in your town. <laughs> mm. yeah yeah like i this is like i remember around that time that was uh beaded curtain at the video store time oh yeah yeah you know that that i feel like that was very like those two things somehow have some type of relationship i'm guessing that's a hypothesis i didn't think this through no no definitely interesting hypothesis there so, you know, I know you were buying Spawn comics and you're not necessarily buying Spawn comics, but it was, you know, around that time. What was your gateway to, I guess, quote unquote, the more alternative scene? Because, I mean, you're definitely, you know, you have a book here, uh, That Old English. It's definitely, you know, I guess, you know, you call this an alternative book because of the scene you run in. So what was your gateway from mainstream comics to that? Well, I actually segued kind of out of comics, got really into music, ended up going into the Marine Corps in 2004 to 2008. And when I got out, I, uh, oh, I, I'm originally from like the Chicagoland area. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Evanston, right? Yeah. 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 And so I moved to California when I joined the Marine Corps. And after I got out, I wanted to stay in LA and I got a job at a comic book shop. And while I was at the comic book shop, I just read just religiously. Uh, I was more into like, cause my, at that point I stopped listening to hip hop really. That eventually came back, but I was like super into the punk rock skinhead scene in LA, just hanging out every night, getting crazy. But during the day I would like be reading like all of the goth, like vertigo titles and that kind of uh, Sandman and Constantine eventually turned into sad white guy comics, like, you know, Joe (laughs) Matt and yeah, (laughs) the pipeline. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You know, the, (laughs) I feel like like sad white guy is the American genre. Yeah, no, it, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think well, I, you think there's yeah. a shift moving away from that? No, 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 no. We no. we love our sad white guys. I, I it's uh, is Ernest Hemingway the first narrative sad white guy? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he comes from a rich, long line of sad white guys, so... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think that the like I uh, in high school, like the the three first books that I read, I wasn't a big reader in high school. Uh, but it was like it went uh, "Ham on Rye" by Bukowski, uh, "Soul on Ice" by Eldridge Cleaver, and uh, "One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest." And so, hmm. like, I feel like uh, like I think about that sad white guy story as like in a very romantic way. I know that like it, there's so many problematic elements of it, but like it's just one of those things that. that caricature of that sad white dude is forever in my head yeah it's it's uh, that's like art <laughs> yeah yeah it's a, rich, it's a very um cemented narrative right in in yeah. u.s art forms basically i mean it's not even yeah we're going to get into this a little bit more about visual art because you have that background too but um that narrative is like so embedded in all other art forms especially the visual medium too like when you're talking about the history of painting in america or in europe it's pretty much just that Oh yeah, actually, I, I mean, I can think about this idea of like nothing raises the value of your painting than having a narrative of a sad white guy attached to it. Right. Yeah. It's just something I don't. There's so. Is it just romantic? I don't know. Is that is that a romantic thing? No, one hundred percent, it is. It is romanticism is to blame if if we're being honest. But yeah. yeah. Like it, it's weird just because I I don't necessarily think of it as romantic, but yet again, it's just always it's there. It's hard to avoid. I should make a story about a sad white guy. That's, <laughs> I, I should write a sad white guy book. I mean, it's it's something I, I would be interested in seeing your take on that, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I've I've read a bunch of – like, honestly, I probably read and seen and consumed more sad white guy stories than most people. I could probably knock that down. I'm pretty good at horror, you know? Uh, mm. I, I play around with genres. I know more sad white guys. Those, those are definitely intertwined. I mean, Lovecraft yeah. is pretty much a sad white guy who <laughs> made creepy stories, so – for so many reasons. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Yeah, we won't. <laughs> I think most listeners know the the uh, story is behind that guy. But uh, <laughs> uh, so so yeah. So you came back from the Marine Corps, and you were really involved in the punk scene there, and you're reading mm-hmm. more. At what point did you then kind of venture more into the visual arts? Uh, at that time, I think I'd, uh, I've, I've never stopped drawing, mm-hmm. uh, even when I kind of, my interest in comics had kind of dwindled in high school a bit, like late high school. And, uh, when I started just consuming comics, I started writing more. And I, I think I, uh, my initial desire was to become a better writer and then one day write the, uh, great American novel, uh, Stan Lee style. And, uh, then I, at some point, uh, oh, actually, I don't know. I forgot this part. One of the reasons why I actually joined the Marine Corps was to go to film school because I wanted to write a book, but I also eventually wanted to make, like, get into film and make film. Oh, and then okay. while living in California, it, like I'd known a couple people who were making film and kind of got familiar with that space. And it was like, Oh, I don't want to do this with anyone. <laughs> I <Yeah>. just really- <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not exactly a, a one man show. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of- I'm like, Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone's going to do sound, I'm doing sound. No, I'm directing and sound and costume. And, uh, <laughs> And uh, I realized that I just wanted to write scripts and tell stories. And since I was already drawing and working at a comic shop and, you know, 100% loved comics, loved reading them, I was like, I, 
I'll just make comics for fun. And uh, at that point, I think I started painting. Yeah, just kind of throwing stuff against the wall, seeing what sticks. Honestly, I was just going to shows all the time. You know, going to shows, drinking, going to soccer games, doing a lot of fun things. Uh, and, and <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> that make- Writing and drawing were things I did during the day in between like football matches at like Liverpool bars in Long Beach and punk shows in Hollywood, you know? So I I was just doing, I was killing time, you know? Yeah. Wow. Besides the Marine Corps aspect, uh, your 20s sound very similar to mine. (laughs) (laughs) it's it's interesting just because like i think my ambitions weren't particularly high i was like one day i'll open a record store one day i'll open a bar there's a short list of things that you can do as like a punk once you get old and i was like oh i'll just do one of those things and i'll just (laughs) you know continue drawing while i get there and you know making comics is cool I, i i don't know i didn't imagine making comics would ever earn me a living or make any money uh i think one of the first things that I did was like, like, and like seriously did, it was like, I'm gonna make this good was like a parody on a, it was for Tumblr. It was a community had a parody of Doctor Who called Inspector Space Time. Okay. And so I made like a one, a two page comic about some like secondary Doctor Who knockoff called uh, Inspector Space Time. And uh, it was just, you know, I don't know. I, I, it was fun. I, I actually remember that. I wish I could find that somewhere. That's, that was a fun thing to draw. <laughs> Did you actually like print and distribute it? Oh, no. Uh, it, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, it, w- it was one of those things where I. it would be a long time until I actively committed to the act of making comics as a public act. Committing to the bit. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was there were there were all of these uh like I always loved it and it's always been the like through line in my life. Yeah. But as far as you know, it was something that I uh was doing while I was trying to figure everything out. Right, right, yeah. And it was in front of me the whole time. Oh, mm. the poetry of a life. <laughs> so, when did you actually like, you know, start making comics? Was it something you flirted with? you know, on and off and then decided to commit to the bit full time, like we were saying, like this would happen after I moved to San Francisco and I went to San Francisco State University and got my uh, my bachelor's degree in fine art with a uh, a minor in human sexuality. Okay, okay. I was uh, I was painting, I was drawing, uh, I was still making comics for myself. And then uh, as I was applying for grad school, I was going to apply for the master's program in uh, human sexuality at San Francisco State University. But then uh, I had uh, a professor, Deborah Brown, who was like, do you know what? Uh, This program probably wouldn't fit you. You're just kind of a, as a straight black man, you will find yourself very frustrated in the space. And though I think you would get a lot from it and do fairly well, it would be kind of a hell exper- hellish experience. Hmm. And the other option that I had, I was either going to apply to San Francisco State University with this program, or I was going to go to CCA, California College of the Arts, because they just had a new comics program. And I took all of my comics that I made for myself, put it into a package, sent it off to grad school. And I was like, well, hey, might as well commit. Hmm. And that that... At, at that was the point where I was like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And there's no, if I was good, I was like, if I'm getting a master's in this, this is what I'm going to do forever. No questions asked. Mm-hmm. Start going to conventions, start doing the thing. And yeah, never looked back. And, and at what point then did you get into the idea of teaching? 
it's hard for me to describe the uh, amazing experience of actually going to CCA's comics program. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was Nicole George's, John Jennings, Ed Luce, Justin Hall. Um, there, there are so so many professors there that were just like pivotal. And and I I don't know like honestly like Justin Hall taught history and it was the most amazing uh, experience yeah so I mean I think after having this phenomenal experience with all of these teachers and especially because all of the teachers weren't just like cis white dudes like they were there but they were they were like two mm-hmm. or three out of fifteen faculty and it was one of those things where I'm like I think like one thing I felt like there is a need for like more people of color and people of different identities in positions of authority, especially in jobs that seem kind of impossible. But also, I think I got over the... I don't know. I I just always thought of before I got into teaching, I thought it would just be an overly social kind of experience where I'm just constantly surrounded by strangers looking for my validation. And I realized at some point that that's not what it would be. Mm -hmm. Not always. Sometimes, but not always. And uh, I was like, I, I could do this. And, and so, yeah, no, I, it, an, an amazing college experience. And actually, I'm even undercutting my undergrad experience because that was amazing too. Hmm. Like I had just amazing faculty. I kind of just learned the importance of a good teacher. And, and uh, I was like, I think that's pretty worthwhile. And you get summers off. That was pretty chill too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're teaching summer courses, in which case, Ooh. you know, salute to you. Because I, I, knew, I knew a couple of our professors that did that. Oh my, that's, that's, oh, I couldn't imagine. That's, oh. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so yeah, so that leads us to now, uh, you've been doing a lot of comics and illustration work for hyper, uh, hyper allergic, wait, hyper allergic, hyper allergic, right? Yep. Yes. Okay. Hyper allergic. Yep. And, uh, you've been doing a couple of sort of one-offs and, and series there. So with that, you then finally got something printed, self-published. Uh, with uh, yes. that old English number one. Yes. Where does this stand in terms of like all the stuff you've done in terms of like self-publishing? Is this your first go at self-publishing or are there other works out there that we're not privy to? I'd say that this is my first proper go self-publishing. I think that I've made books and specifically for the act of like tabling, like having a couple friends go into Ape and me being like, okay, I'll, okay. I'll make 40 books and bring it. Mm-hmm, and yeah. so there was no am, like super high ambition surrounding it. And this one is like my first like like really put my foot in there and give it a go. And yeah, it, it, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an amazing, uh, it, it was just an amazing experience making it. And Anybody out there thinking about hesitating, don't worry about that. Just keep just keep making stuff. That's the <laughs> it's strange because I think there was this desire to have the validation of someone saying that they wanted me to make it. Right. And I got that with uh, with hyperallergic. I think that a lot of my editorial work was uh, it, it was nice to make work, you know, have pitches and kind of negotiate what I would do and kind of execute. I think there's always been a part of me that uh, likes a, a bit of soldiering. Uh, I kind of like uh, for someone to say, we need you and this is our mission kind of vibes. And sure. um, yeah, I, th- I think waiting for orders was uh, a bad call on my part. Well, do you know, not a bad call. It got me here. I really like the book. <laughs> like if, if, <laughs> if someone were to say, and if uh, I think there are a handful of people that have worked prior to this, this is identified as my first book. I would be super proud and stoked for that weight. Okay. What was that early stuff like that you were making and taking to shows? 
Um, it's interesting just because, uh, like, I think hyper allergic is a really great place for me as a comic artist to develop because I'm kind of full of shit as, as like in a way an artist is in a way that like one of those gallery people are like I, I have that language I have that art like I learned how to write an artist statement and when I would make comics they would always be super like formally focused with very, I don't know, they were artsy comics that were very much about presentation. They were almost just like kind of a, a conversation piece for people to ask me what it is. And mm-hmm. so I could, so I could talk. Uh- <laughs> I see. I'm just interested in seeing this stuff. Cause like that, <laughs> that formal sort of vocabulary and language in art is something I'm more familiar with than, than comics. And so I know that uh, there is a certain level of snake oil salesman platitudes that you kind of adopt while in arts school. Like it's just kind of embedded into it and you can't really avoid it. Because uh, once you start speaking too openly and honestly, that's when things get uh, like not presentable. I, I don't know how another way to put it, but you know what I mean. Yeah. I, I think art art is a like the fine art space is a really weird space. There's something that is actively alienating, like very intentionally alienating about it. Except you, it's the only place you get validated for it. It's like mm-hmm. if a DJ only played deep cuts, uh, <laughs> and, and it's something that like, I'm not here to make you dance. I'm here for you to reflect on this. And if you leave, I'm judging you. <laughs> and, but like, it, it's, it's an interesting place. Like, uh, I could talk shit about it all day, but there's a part of me that is also like, I could handle it. I could go in there and like, I could put on that, that jacket and schmooze with the best of them and say really heady, weird things. But yeah, it's, uh, I, I remember that being, uh, very impactful on my early work. I mean, honestly, it's still even there. I'm sure you notice a little bit, um, in that old English. Uh, it's, yeah, you know, it's. I think it's nice in small doses. Sometimes, if you if you buy into it, it gets a bit crazy <laughs> at some point. I feel like I might have bought into it, but now I'm kind of over that pretension. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's merit and value in uh, sort of the formal art with a capital A, but yeah, that's. I mean, that's a whole other topic that I'm sure. <laughs> If we have you back on, that is something I would really like to kind of delve into deeper because that's... Well, it's not completely absent from the comics <laughs> either, you know? Yeah, it's no. <laughs> uh, it's just less money. I, I used to... Are, are you familiar with less, the... Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I say uh, Art Basel's just Comic-Con for rich people. Uh, it's... <laughs> yeah. Just more cocaine. Yeah. That's pretty much the only difference. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all about, uh, it's a collector's market. That kind of conversation. Half the time you realize that money plays a bigger part into it than as the creator you'd like to be involved. But yeah. Yeah. The, I, I feel like when it comes to the collecting aspect, of art versus comics, there's more like significant capital and cultural weight to art still with a capital A, whereas comics has quickly been devalued over the last 60, 70 years where that's so niche. Like, let's say, for example, you have the original pages of, fuck, I don't know, of Black Hole, for example, by Charles Burns. Yeah. And that would be coveted by fans of Charles Burns, small press fans, comic fans. But that's such a small circle and like the total amount of like money to really speak of in those circles is really not that great that you can't really use comics as a viable way to do stuff like uh, money laundering yeah. the way art with a capital A is. So I, I guess that's one thing that the comics aspect has a leg up and I, I don't think comics wants it that way. I think if NFT has shown us anything, they're very uh, jealous of the yeah. fact 
that you can do that in, in the art world and not in comics so much. I, I want to launder money with my Superman Greg Capullo variant. That's that's right. what I, I want to. Yeah, that's really the goal for a lot of people. I mean, yeah, yeah. No, it, it makes sense. I, I think that was one of the because I I dabbled in fine art. I've painted before. I've sold paintings, and I think uh, I just have always would prefer the idea of selling, you know, a hundred thousand comics for $2 than selling Mm. one painting for $200,000. Something about it seems more reasonable. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, at that point you're able to get whatever it is you're trying to say or do to a much larger audience in a way, right? Cause like if you're doing one painting and it's like $200,000 or at least that's what collector X, Y, and Z are wanting to throw for the painting, then yeah, you can. It goes into a vault. It goes somewhere in a warehouse in Florida and kind of stays in their account. Right. And only such a small portion of the population would be able to afford that. Whereas with a comic, it is very much this sort of, the roots of comics is very working class Americana. Yeah. Disposable, affordable media. Exactly. Exactly. So anyone can get them. I'm all about it. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that is one thing that comics has over art with a capital A. <laughs> but even then, I <laughs> yeah. feel like now, and I mean, you know, I feel like they're making comics too expensive. I feel like for the public or, you know, kids, I guess, to even take a gamble on. Not that we're making comics for kids. So I think the whole dynamic has shifted. But I mean, comics are just going up in price. Like they're going to be like $5 for a floppy soon from the mainstream comics, which that means, you know, an independent book's going to be 8 10 12 dollars you know because I, I think that has to do with the fact that the readership has shrunk yeah i mean that makes sense you know the printing bill goes up when you print it's less. been so consistently affordable throughout the history of the medium that anybody could buy them but now we're at that point in the i guess uh collective unconsciousness of of america that comics as a medium is not really that valuable you know like it's it has no real cultural weight outside of what comic adaptations movies, you know? Right. That's the language that people are more familiar with now. While the printed page, the printed comics themselves are still kind of seen as this niche weird thing that only, you know, fucking losers and nerds are into. I mean, it's 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 really a a shame just because I think honestly like when I think back to like all of like the zine and indie comics cultures and like, I think about like the people who used to be able to make just print media it was very accessible to share with a small community. Yeah. And at at this point, it's it's one of those things where I don't know, like I, I feel like since there's so much media out there, leave the little guy with this print make make making a newspaper really cheap and easy so that we can just yeah. do that with each other. <laughs> I find making physical print media to be more worthwhile in terms of physically sharing it with people that I know. Like when I make uh, editorial work, it goes to oh, a huge audience. The the hundreds of people that get to read my physical comics. It's just I don't know. I feel like it's like uh it's like a, it's a future t- it's a ticket to my funeral, you know what I mean? Like hey, whoever whoever yeah. got a copy of this, you're invited. If you have an original copy of this comic, yeah. come on to my funeral. You're your family. <laughs> <laughs> And it could be tied up with the fact that print media, by and large, is a dying medium. Like just the format of print is, it's so outdated now that it's kind of a miracle that comics are now really the only last institution carrying on that tradition of print media. 
I mean, everything is digital now, yeah. even fucking books. I was going to say, it, yeah. I mean, I started working in a bookstore, so I'm also like in a bubble, but people still love books. So I think that oh, yeah. it's one of those yeah. things that's always going to be around. But like you said, it's just going to get more niche as time goes by. I think we're going to see more kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know if you all keep up with like video games, but a lot of titles are digital only and they'll do like physical runs, but they're usually like crowdfunded or more expensive because yeah, it's like, you know, bookcases and yeah. presentation. It's making it into an object. Right. Right. And, you know, it's it'll be interesting to see if comics kind of follow suit, you know, like eventually if it just dwindles down to that. So these are just artisan objects like uh, it's like going into a Renaissance fair and be like, oh, this is just like the 1800s. They used to have these buildings with books. <laughs> yeah. Check this out. This is crazy. Like <laughs> vinyl records were such a uh, common thing. Everyone owned vinyl records. Everyone had a record player. And now it's seen as this sort of like niche hobbyist thing, but it's able to flourish within that marketplace, right? Like they, they figured out a way to make these things into art objects. Yeah, because you got different colors. Inserts, right. Yeah. And special art and all that stuff. You have to make it special for collectors. Yeah. <laughs> I love records. <laughs> like, like I actually, um, when I was uh, living in San Francisco, one of the places I worked was Pirates Press Records. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we would uh, press flexies in the back. And it was one of those things where, oh, man. Yeah. I, do you know what? You're, you're absolutely right making those objects. I mean, at some point, I remember us like... Uh, we would play so much around pressing different materials because back in the 70s, they had like cereal boxes. You could just press into anything. Yeah, like a lathe cut, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember there was a period there from like 03 to like 07, 08 that like every like punk record was pressed at Pirates Press, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it was one of the, oh, gosh, I remember going through the attic and uh, the boss saying, you know, grab a couple things and just being like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, that's sick. And y'all were doing a bunch of crazy. I remember Pirates Press was like really... Uh, known for like just doing off the wall color stuff in their vinyl when people weren't doing stuff like that kind of like you know i don't maybe they were but i don't know i remember just like buying a lot of records and getting a lot of crazy swirls and splatter jobs and everything that were pressed there yeah yeah no they they like the color vinyl was fantastic yeah 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 and actually i think that brings up a, a really interesting point just because i think that with small presses i mean not only are the books becoming rarer i feel like even though i think what, what what's the bookstore was borders closed down like yeah. borders went away now there's just barnes and noble i think and i books think that's a million. the only main chain books a million still oh, books around a million. Yeah. yeah yeah uh but like i think that when it comes to independent bookstores when it comes to independent publishers when it comes to independent presses i think that there is possibly more uh independent ooh i i should uh, i was about to say is it more than like the 70s like i feel like i think back to like san francisco in the late 60s early 70s and the amount of like last gasp like spots that existed mm -hmm. and part of me is just under the impression that they're just like all over the place now i feel like there's something about that independent printing of physical objects that's been really nice yeah, I mean, that's something that we have been talking about in the last few episodes. Well, I mean, honestly, we talk about it almost every other episode now that I think about it. But uh, <laughs> within the last two or three years, uh, let's say five years, I'll be generous. And in, in the last five years, there's definitely been a sort of boom period, it feels, with the number of small press publishers popping up and, and distributors too. 
Yeah, yeah. And and I, I think that's exciting, especially because like uh, back when I was working at the comic shop, it was like all you had was Diamond. And yeah. I, I, like in the past like five years, I've been hearing rumblings of the eventual toppling of Diamond. And I'm like, is it happening? And they're like, wait, it's coming. And I'm like, oh, it's going to happen. And I, I like, I'm wait, I'm still waiting. I still believe it's going to happen. But like a lot of indie presses, even like imprints happening at major uh, book publishers, I think that there are just more avenues for smaller publications. They're just paying less, I guess. But <laughs> hey, you yeah. know, trades. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I mean, there was a bunch of distributors, you know, before Diamonds. So if anything, maybe I think the goal would be just to have a few larger distributors. So that way, you know, I mean, I know, you know, the bigger it gets, you know, the worse it gets, but I don't think there's something wrong with like having bigger companies that can get you, you know, around the world as opposed to a bunch of little small places that can't, you know, get you the reach that something with the infrastructure behind it could. Right. So I don't necessarily think having like a big distribution chain is a bad thing. It's just having one that dictates the entire industry is bad. You know, I I wouldn't be opposed to, you know, four or five, six major distributors, you know, at least having an avenue and, you know, not being so selective about what they carry and, you know, alienating a huge percent. Well, what to me feels like a big percentage of exciting comics, you know, in the grand scheme of it all, it's just a drop in the bucket uh, because we're what, like 1% of the market. But, you know, I do think it's a little bullshit, the little hoops and hurdles you have to jump through just to get into like a store. Yeah. I mean, the infrastructure that's already there is also super outdated. Like, there's yeah, been, yeah, for sure. There's been no real reason for these companies to update this shit, to make the logistic aspects of all of this run smoothly. Right. So as a result, we're just stuck with like 20 or 30 year old technology in terms of like how to get this stuff out to people. I think there's going to be a, a strong but too late pivot. I, I, I realize like with uh, a lot of this like Amazon publishing and a lot of these uh independent presses, this, these imprints, I think that the way that Diamond deals with it, the way comic shops have been dealing with things, I feel like there is a growth and development and a changing of those spaces and a lot of the culture surrounding those spaces. But I often worry that it might be too late and they're kind of uh, inevitably going to be I don't know, just dwindle into to nothingness because like that that pivot needed to happen. I, I feel like there just needed to be uh, more active engagement with local shops and less kind of dictation of what was going to sell by larger companies like Diamond. Yeah. Not everybody wants that Deadpool number one, which is the fifth number one kind of vibe. You know, it's just- <laughs> Right, right, yeah. yeah. I, I think diversifying outside of the standards of what most people assume what comics are would be- Super, super helpful for the medium by and large. But yeah, there's been resistance to that for so long because the reality is most stores and most companies want to take on zero risk, right? Yeah. Especially with something yeah. like comics. You know, they don't really oh, yeah, see it worth sure. their while. And, and that's kind of why we're stuck where we are now, right? Like if you talk to a stranger on a, a public bus about comics, more than likely they're going to think you're talking about Superman or Batman or Spider Man. Yeah. The world outside of that is so alien and unknown to most people that uh, the idea that you can even make a comic that's not about a caped superhero is just like so insane and absurd. Yeah, I'm, there is something to be said. And this is, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out of my creator bubble mm-hmm. and go to my consumer bubble. Okay. There's something awesome about the fact that there are so few spaces that you could get really good, solid like comics. And the fact that you have to go to specific events and you have to collect all of, like you can't go to anyone but the actual creator after they've rented a table to get that book. And like, you know, 
you you get the deepest of cuts in comics with the weirdest of subjects from the broadest uh, selection of people who are just like you. Yeah. There's this, um, <laughs> I imagine that there are fans who are inherently upset by any uh, notable success of any of their really deep cut underground artists because just the exclusive relationship that they have with that artist is now less exclusive. And I think that comics have that appeal to it of like, I could write my favorite artist and they might respond. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I think in, I think accessibility is important as a creator as well nowadays. I just think that you know, the day and age and being accessible, I think that there is something to that. So, uh, Craig, I do want to change gears a little bit and get into process. You know, um, at the retreat, you know, I picked up a copy of that old English, amazing book. It is for sale uh, still. You still have copies, correct? Yes, yes. Okay, awesome. So I do want to talk a little bit about that. This is issue one. Is this going to be an ongoing for you? Do you have a plan as far as like how far you want to take this book or are you working on something else entirely now? I'm working on something else entirely right now, but it's something that I plan on doing in tandem. I tend to have large chunks of time when I write, uh, illustrate, when I ink, etc. And so, uh, I wrote that old English uh, when I was living in Brooklyn back in 2017. And I wrote the book that I'm currently working on, Children and Heath, back in 2014. Uh, or the script, I, I completed it around 2015. So, um, these are just stories that I've written a long, a long time ago that I'm just kind of get out of my head. But like, uh, that old English is going to be six issues. We'll see where Children of Heath ends. I'm going for six as well. I try mm. to keep things at six because I have to draw everything and still teach. So <laughs> yeah, six is a good number for a miniseries, honestly. It's yeah. solid. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, so, so. How, how much changed between the initial story when you wrote it to now when you adapt it? The way I've uh, approached script writing, I really like reading stage plays. Okay. I don't know if anybody has read a stage play, but they just give you like an establishing. This is an alley at this time and these people are here. These are the characters here. And then they just have the dialogue kind of listed. And so uh, I do have like very like one sentence descriptors. But I just kind of run through it, keeping everything like maximum on any page being uh, eight panels. And then when I go to draw it, everything is eight panels, basically. Okay. okay. And then I, I use whatever spaces I have to create beats in the pages. And I maintain that rhythm. I really like grids. I really like structure. Uh, it allows for me to not necessarily worry as much about how I'm going to compose an entire page, but like I just work within the rhythm and try to keep uh, a beat going. But yeah, as I transferred it over, uh, the best editor I've ever had is a word balloon. So all the intelligence turn into smart and all of the you know inconsequentials turn into not cool. And <laughs> and so uh, that ends up being the, the majority of the change, but the plots stay the same. Okay. I might throw in a couple of, uh, if I think a line is clever, something. Oh, like in that old English, that entire bus ride with the, the like, uh, the duck. Yeah. 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 The duck girl. That whole thing, uh, was added in later. Uh, but yeah, I try to commit to it and be as respectful of my past self writing as I can, uh, tweaking anything that's necessary. Okay. Uh, now before we delve into the content of it, I do want to talk about the formal aspects of it. So the way you rendered these characters, especially certain ones, like you, we mentioned the duck character, there's like mm -hmm. a combination of like humans and then also animal characters, like cartoon animal characters with human proportions. And then there's also humans wearing animal masks. 
mm-hmm. as yep. well. And they're all just kind of in the same world. So could you kind of explain what's going on here and what made you decide to render these characters that way? And also touch on sort of what cues you're taking from an aesthetic approach to this. Yeah. So when it comes to a lot of the things that I, I make, I I do not try to hide any kind of thing that I'm referencing. I think that we all reference things and it's really fun. Yeah. I like making replicas and things like that and kind of playing around with specific aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And so when I initially came up with the uh, aesthetic that I chose, I think like I was looking at like, you know, uh, Henry and Glenn forever and uh, like uh, Al Columbia books. And there were certain aesthetics that I thought were really interesting that were pulled from the Mouse Corporation. And I ended up getting really into like Carl Barks and Floyd Godverson and all of these aesthetics kind of recalled to basically minstrel shows. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm actively trying to, like, when when I think about how I represent a character or represent a person in a story, I feel like the aesthetic should be uh, a genuine choice. And I wanted this to be reflective of a certain degree of alienation and create a, an emotional response. And that Floyd Godverson or, you know, Paul Murray, all those artists played to those, like, minstrel show tropes that I, I wanted to add in there. But they also had these animal comics. And I actually... I had kind of a difficulty trying to figure out how I would represent the non-black characters in the story. And I remember at some point, I just had everybody look like Tintin or something. Like I was just like, oh, what, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do <laughs> what do these characters look like? European comics, I guess. And uh, at some point, it hit me that like, oh, uh, just anamorphic characters. And I thought of the show Zoobilizoo. Do y'all remember the show Zoobilizoo? I'm not familiar. Maybe yeah, I if I saw it, so. you know, it might like, you know, unlock something, but I'm not, it's not ringing a bell right away. I, I recommend checking out Zoobly Zoo. It's uh, it was a children's show on PBS that involved a lot of singing and dancing and a bunch of adults dressed like animals. Okay. okay. And so that became the kind of aesthetic choice that I went for because it allowed for me to continue to engage with aesthetic while at the same time maintaining that human element and allow that to kind of punctuate certain emotional moments, either making you feel closer or further away from that character. Okay. But yeah, that was my thought process. See, this is that art thing I was talking about. Like I get a little, <laughs> a little heady. <laughs> there, I mean, yeah, I do get a lot of, uh, I guess like mid to late nineties era Disney animation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, but then it also, like you said, that aesthetic really begins to do some weird things when you then also have uh, these other characters that sort of reference Flesher era animation, and then also the use of blackface characters. Yeah, like you know, there there's something going on there because I remember flipping through this the first time, being like, this is. <laughs> <laughs> wild, <laughs> you know, like it was. It all felt very intentional, you know, like. To me as a reader, it felt very much like you knew what you were doing with these aesthetics. So that's why I wanted to talk about that a bit. It it seems so intentional to me to create that sort of uh, sense of unease that I think other people like, you know, Al Columbia and others like him, they make great work, sure. But I feel like the idea of just appropriating that aesthetic and being like, oh, look how spooky it is. You know, like I don't really get much from that to be quite honest, but this does something. Yeah, I mean, with that specific type of stuff, it's basically teddy bear with teeth. It's it's kind of give something cute a knife. Uh, uh, yeah, like I I think that's that's. But not even not even that like on the nose. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I wanted to make like 
intentionality is just, uh, I guess, like a big deal for me. Like there are certain works where even if everything isn't completely intentional and have a very specific point. Like I feel like the difference between a kitchen that's lived in and a kitchen that isn't is everything is functional and everything happened. There is a reason to it. Yeah. And and it, you could read that automatically. It's 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 when someone thought about something even if it's something that they forget about. I I'm, I'm sure there are jokes and visual things mm-hmm. that were gags that I threw in that I got in at the time, but like I don't even remember what they were for. That at least at the moment I thought of something. And so there's something to be read. Yeah. No, I mean, I think the book is very successful on that end. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And so, I, th- I mean, this is issue one, obviously, of uh, what you said uh, is going to be a six-issue series. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to talk about um, what made you decide specifically to tell this story? What were some of the things that you were pulling from as reference material or things that inspired you to sort of drive this story? So, you know, beyond the aesthetic stuff that we've already just touched on, but it, it, like the meat of the story of what you're discussing here. I think there is a degree of alienation for any identity that chooses to leave their space. Like, so you could be, you know, you could just uh, a minority of some kind, you know, you could be just whatever unique space you occupy as a person, uh, leaving that space and come in that space, there's a degree of alienation. And I wanted to specifically identify this kind of like, I remember when I wrote this in Brooklyn, I'm Jamaican, both my parents are from Jamaica and I was living in Brooklyn, but it was after I'd gotten out of art school in San Francisco. And so like, I went from a very white space to a very, like not only black space, but very Jamaican space. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I could feel a gap. And I, I think when I wrote this story, I wanted to kind of talk about that gap. I feel like a lot of titles that deal with race tend to be narrow in their scope. And this is not about the writers or artists that make them. It's about pretty much the publishers that choose the least offensive work that they can find. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so those conversations tend to be very uninteresting. And so and in my mind, I just I, I wanted to tell stories that actively talked about the human condition without kind of moralizing it. Yeah. And so there's no like, who's the bad person? I mean, either everybody, I guess. Everybody's kind of bad. Everybody makes bad decisions. Uh, You know, who's the good person? I don't know, man. It's (laughs) Craig, how am I as the reader supposed to know that I'm a good person if there isn't a character in here that is clearly the bad person that I can point at and say, see, that's the bad one? Yeah. There there are tons of black characters in this. There are tons of white characters in this. And you get to choose which ones are bad. It's called Freedom. I... Racism. Well, that's racism. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it's 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 uh, it's it's a fun story. Like uh, again, I think that's one of the reasons why I like the idea of making comics. I like that was another thing. Like me going to CCA in San Francisco and like being able to engage with, like being able to talk to like Mary Wings and like. Lee Mars and Trina Robbins and getting like tell stories that say fuck you. I mean, uh, like it's it's like you don't have to blatantly say fuck you to say fuck you. Just tell stories that people don't want you to tell. Best way I could describe this feeling. I had a friend once uh, in the Marine Corps and I was uh, showing them Boondocks. I've been reading the Boondocks cartoon strips since I was in high school, mm-hmm. and um, I was showing my friend. Uh, he's black. And like, then I showed him the cartoon and he was like, this makes me a bit uncomfortable. And I'm like, why? Cause he's laughing the whole way through. He's like, I'm not right. comfortable with, I'm not comfortable with white people knowing these stories. 
And, <laughs> and in my mind, those are the only stories that I want to tell. It's it's because yeah. they aren't stories for white people, right? But white people can consume them. Right. Anybody can consume them, but they're honest stories about people within a community who engage with different subjects other than you know police brutality and sure, yeah. and what have you. It's it's just like you know. Do I deal with police brutality? Yeah, but not like every day. It only happens like once every couple of years. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> no, you mean, I think, you know, a story like this goes beyond just, oh, you know, uh, racism as an, as an institution, but I think takes it on a personal level. Like, what does it mean to a people? Like to to the individual and also to those within that community, if rather than just discussing these kind of overarching discussions that are really out of their control, right? Yeah. Like you, you can't just go into a police station and say, "Hey, stop being racist." <laughs> that doesn't work that way. But I've tried; it does not help. <laughs> right? I mean, that was the one time a year situation deal, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do not drive. Do not drive home from that engagement. <laughs> yeah, uh, but a story like this, I feel, takes a, a certain level of autonomy about the subject matter, right? Like it makes it far more personal, and I could see why yeah. that would rub people the wrong way. Well, and I also think that abstracting the point allows for a deeper engagement. I, yeah. I know that like I, I grew up in a neighborhood where there were a lot of uh, both uh, um, black, uh, brown, Asian. I had a lot of friends whose parents didn't speak English yeah. or were bilingual or what have you. And a lot of friends who didn't speak the same language as their parents. And so yeah. that I think that there is something worth touching on on that relationship and where those the complexity of how language affects our daily engagements and how it kind of brings us together and separates us. Yeah, uh, that's something I can uh, speak to. It's one of those things where, and I don't want to get into this too much because I feel like that's just going to take away time about this book, but basically I can say, Yes. <laughs> yes, very much so. Yes, and I think that is a thing that most, you know, most people don't really have an understanding of or are familiarity with because it's something that's so outside the realm of their experiences of the day to day. Yeah, I had I had a friend uh, who actively went on like Google and translated it during the read, I guess. And they then they were like, "Oh, it read really well," but I had to go to Google. And I'm like, "Yeah, you weren't supposed to necessarily know what they were talking about. <laughs> like, right. it all it, it all makes sense." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, out of raw labor and an attempt to make a cohesive story for anybody who does speak Hasi mm -hmm. or ha uh, Hasa. Yeah, I, I mean, it is a readable, but it's not necessarily the point. It's about that gap right. and not being able to understand. Yeah, and I thought that was a great tool to use, um, you know, from a narrative standpoint. Because again, when I was reading that, I was just like, I have no idea what they're saying. I, I don't even know if I'm, I'm like, I'm assuming because you know, Craig, college guy, he's very smart. Uh, you know, he probably did actual translations, and this is a language I'm not familiar with. But I'm not going to bother looking into it because it's just like this. That defeats the whole point, <laughs> yeah. right? Like. The mm -hmm. point is that I'm supposed to feel alienated in that situation. Like I'm not supposed yeah. to know what they're saying. Yeah. And th that's the reason why I never really, uh, I guess uh, I uh, like, I never really say which 
African language it is until mm-hmm. this podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yourself, Craig. <laughs> uh, and, and if someone wants to translate it, I mean, by all means, I guess go for it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> but like, it's it's one of those things where, it, like, that that it, 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 you got it. I'll go with yes. Yes. Because in that situation, knowing more actually makes you know less about what the story is about and what's going on. Yeah. I mean, uh, have have you ever heard uh, Chuck Jones' definition of discipline? Uh, No. All right. So he says that for every character that he creates, especially since they uh, show up in different situations, Bugs Bunny always shows up in a different situation. He has to have a singular discipline for them, Mm -hmm. a rule that they always abide by that kind of defines them as characters. Like Bugs Bunny never picks a fight. He finishes a fight. Like something like that. Mm. And I I like looking at artists who seem to have some like type of handicap. Like I'm not going to use, you know, words to tell this story. This story, like hair, this is only going to be here, yeah. here. This is only going to be in one place. Like having a single like discipline and allowing for yourself to fight with one arm uh, makes makes the story all that stronger. And I think that that was a part of that element is like me having to do this dual language story and make it make sense if you don't understand both sides of the conversation. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that kind of relates to uh, an earlier point you made about layouts in that you don't want to overcomplicate these layouts, right? Like Mm -hmm. by restricting yourself to making it this very straightforward eight panel format, you then have these parameters to work within. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like if this stuff got too heady with layouts, I mean, I'm sure at some point down the story, you know, issues later, there might be a point to doing that. But where it stands now, there's no point, right? Like it would just yeah. complicate things for the sake of complicating them. Well, and also on a functional level, it keeps me making them. It's uh, you know, yeah, like I yeah. think that <laughs> being able to lay out uh, your page before like before the end of your workday having your page laid out and maybe uh having some text down walking into that is way better than walking into a blank piece of paper yeah 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 <laughs> for sure uh, yeah yeah limitations can help you I-, I think a lot of people don't really keep that in mind uh, especially new creators i feel like a lot of people oh, that are early into making comics and are really trying to get flashy and trying to impress i don't know themselves or you know the readership or whoever they tend to overlook the fact that you know keep it simple stupid like just fucking tell yeah. your story you don't have to worry about all this other stuff like it it's it doesn't matter one one thing that i've learned as an adult are people are always less impressed than i'd like to imagine <laughs> Like, <laughs> like, like, you know, I think there was a point where I imagined that, you know, uh, Neil Gaiman would come, come home to his wife and be like, I wrote like, like he's writing outside of the house. I wrote a 500 page book. And then she's like, oh my gosh. And I'm the first one to read it. And she's super excited. No, there's, that is not the interaction. She's like, God damn it. Do I have to read your book? No, totally. I mean, I, my girlfriend, you know, just at first, you know, when we first started dating, she would read my books. And I think that's just because you try to impress someone, you know, with your best self when you first start dating them. And now it's like, oh, congratulations on your new book. And she might look in the box at the cover and be like, good job. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not a diss on her. That's just how it is. You know, that's genuine. Yeah. 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 And I I think that uh, that's, that's one of the things where I'm very focused on maintaining a consistent and a healthy practice because I have to continue to enjoy what I'm doing because it's never worth it at the end to be like, look what I made. 
because right. <laughs> it's just never what you the, the the degree of enthusiasm is just never it's it's, it's just not it ha- you have to love this just love making it it's like uh the scene in eastbound and down if you've seen that show where he uh teaches school for the first day after being a superstar athlete and you see him walking down the hallway with all the kids and they're like cheering and everything and then like <laughs> see that it's like yeah. just his imagination and he's just this creepy old dude walking around doing yeah. finger guns yeah 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 <laughs> east you know speaking of the old white uh, you know the sad white man trope Eastbound and is a perfect inversion of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's this idea of like, okay, yeah, he's like broken and sad, but like, look how much of a fucking idiot he is. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> look how much of this. He deserves is- all of this. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, I, I think that that is amazing inversion. Like every, because uh, we all know somebody who thinks that they're, you know, Charles Bukowski. Sure. And it's like, oh, man. And it, like that, the visual of that is hilarious. Just yeah, like that, yeah. that is that person. <laughs> it's it's Kenny Powers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, balancing instructing as well as your own comic work is that hard? Do you feel like you're burned out at the end of the day because you work with it all day, or you know what's that like for you? Yeah, yeah, that's hard. <laughs> yeah. Very burnt out. Um, no, I mean, this, I, I, I'm, I'm a very, very. Uh, <laughs> see, I, I have a feeling students are going to listen to this. I actually, had a, a, a student walk up to me. I like, uh, are you going to be on the Gutter Boys podcast? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 you have fans, uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things where I think it takes about till midterms for me to start working again. Mm-hmm. When everything's being set up, everything's being built. Everyone's learning the skill sets. I think that it's, it's really difficult for me not to really bleed into my work as a teacher. I really love teaching. And my favorite classes were these massive, they, like, they, they weren't massive lecture halls, but they were lecture classes. And I remember just being able to watch a professor, like, just talk for hours. Now, I, I'll go for 30 minutes to 45 minutes uh, of lectures, probably for, two thirds of the semester, maybe something like that. And just have lectures ready for my classes. But man, like did uh, either of you see my uh, lecture at CXC? It should be up on YouTube if anybody wants to watch it. Uh, but I gave a, a page layout lecture at CXC. And hopefully that like, that's how all of my lectures are is just immensely enthusiastic. I, I turn into like Pee Wee's Playhouse. I'm like, hey, kids, this is what we're doing. Bop, bop, bop. <laughs> <laughs> Is that something that is easy for you to turn on? You know, like, yeah. do you feel like you're playing a role as an instructor and, you know, the end result, you know, being a more engaged student? Do you feel like that, you know, kind of takes away from what you I know you said you had students listen to this, so I don't want you to, you know. I, oh, I, no, I think, no, no, no. Yeah. No, it's all good. Um, I, I would say that I am heightened, but I'm I'm genuinely excited to be there. Like I'm mm-hmm. like you can watch me between class and uh, like some students will see me in the halls between class and they could tell when I'm dead. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but then I'm in the I'm in the classroom and, you know, I'm like, hey, kids, we're talking about horror comics today. Boop, boop, boop. 
Here's Al Feistine. Boom, boom, boom. Yada, yada, yada. But like talking about like I, I did a, a bunch of genre lectures this semester and talking about fantasy comics. I can't believe how enthusiastic I was talking about like Conan the Barbarian. And like I went back and read a couple of issues of ElfQuest just so I was fully oh, prepared because yeah. I was talking a lot of industry stuff. I'm like the epics and how those are in books and film, but they tend to be short stories in comics up until you get your uh, Cerebuses, you get your ElfQuest, you get your bone. Uh, but before that, everything had to be very insular. So there couldn't be an epic narrative. And so that kind of ended up shaping the fantasy genre in comics. But like, that's the sh- I get excited about that. I'm really like, mm. see, uh, don't ask me questions about it. We'll be here forever. <laughs> would you ever do a barbarian comic? Yes, I would. I would love to do that. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be very interested in your take on that. I think that like, for uh, like, there are a lot of types of comics that I would love to do, especially because like, uh, I don't know. I, I I investigate and read so much and en- engage a lot. It's interesting uh, uh, listening to you two uh, because I get a lot of gossip and a lot more uh, contemporary engagement that I've I since I'm so buried in the books. I'm just I'm all in the 1960s and and it's nice <laughs> to be pulled back to the now. So it's interesting. Well, you're welcome, Craig. <laughs> you're 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 my anchor. <laughs> hey, we do our best. And we're always yeah, thinking it's, about it's, that, you know. In my, in my quantum leap, you are perpetually pulling me back to myself. <laughs> we're just trying to keep you grounded, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, keeping you honest. <laughs> uh, so what, uh, what do you have lined up in the future? Obviously, we talked a little bit about Children and Heath. Uh, how far along are you into that? And when should people expect issue two of that old English? Uh, that old English I'm shooting for next summer. I'm trying to do nice. one issue of each book uh, per year. Okay. And at, at this point, it's teaching, doing uh, – I, I really, really love CXC. I really love engaging with CXC. Yeah. That's, that's a show that w- w- we have both been meaning to do, I think. It's just never – we never got around to it and then pandemic and, you know – yeah, no, it's something that I think, especially like I, it's very engaging, and like I think the panels are really solid. Uh, it's a learning experience. I think uh, it's a great educational experience for anybody who wants to get into comics. It's a great place for that, and and also the Billy Ireland Museum, which you which you both got to check out. Yeah, having that experience if you're coming in from out of town, going to CXC, visiting the Billy Ireland Museum, doing the whole nine is a, an amazing experience. I agree. Yeah that, yeah, that was my experience with it. You know, that's kind of how it is for me every year I go. So I go as an attendee. I mean, I will say CXC just a, from an outsider's perspective, right? Someone that's never gone to that show. Uh, I will say that CXC seems to have a leg up over other small press shows, largely because of its relationship with Columbus College of Art and, and Design, whether it be directly or indirectly. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think there are several relationships that really heighten the experience. I mean, you have uh, CMA uh, does their uh, comic artist in resident every year. Okay. This year they had uh, Ronald Wimberly who uh, did the lab exhibit, yeah. uh, which in the lab magazine. Oh my God, it's so amazing. <laughs> So the CMA brings out uh, a couple of folk, uh, CCAD and the Billy Ireland Museum, as well as there are a couple of other institutions plugged on there. But like, uh, yeah, it's just amazing stuff. Yeah, but it, it has that academic support system there. 
Yeah. That all these other shows just don't have. Yes, yes. And I think it has the academic support system, but also I think the variations in space. Yeah. You're able to kind of bounce around the city a little bit. You get to go to the library. You get to go to the uh, the actual campus. You mm-hmm. get to go to the museum and you get to go to, well, I guess two museums, the Billy Ireland and CMA. Right. And all of the CXC has events in those spaces. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's really top-notch stuff. So, I mean, that's, that's like uh, being involved with that is something that I want to prioritize in the future as well as continuing to make comics and continuing to teach. Yeah. And continuing my uh, work with Hyperallergic. Actually, I don't suppose you got a chance to check out the uh, the new one. Uh, new. Uh, I did, yeah. I'm really excited about that one. I mean, all the work you've done for them has been pretty solid. I, you know, after after meeting you and, you know, we discussed some of this stuff, you know, when we were at the, the camp, I was reading some of the Hyperallergic stuff that you've done. And yeah, it's all very, I mean, it's top-notch stuff not that far removed really from what I'd seen in that old English in terms of uh, execution there. You're very consistent in terms of like knowing what you want. (laughs) I have a very deadline focused practice. Like, honestly, I don't think I'd be able to do a lot of what I did unless I had hyperallergic uh, experience with them. Cause it'll be like with editorial work, it'd be like, here's the pitch Mm -hmm. two weeks Gotta have it. Right. If I, if I had more time to think about it, maybe I would have come up with a better character than some type of stand-in for myself for most of the projects. <laughs> but it's one of those things where- uh, Hey, people love Autobile. So there you go. People love Autobile. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, does, does that count as Autobile? Like me yeah, wandering around yeah, on the inside of my head? projecting yourself rather than a character. I would say that is Autobile. Yeah. Well, okay. I, right. I, you could also highly uh, sensationalize it too to the point where it's not, I guess. But yeah, but that uh, doesn't come off in these stories. Like, oh, it, no, no, no. You, yeah, you yeah. Not I mean? with your work personally. Yeah, yeah I was yeah, just, yeah. yeah, speaking in general terms. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. 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 So uh, I, I think that like falling forward, uh, making sure that like whatever plans I had, I could make those deadlines. And that meant if I had to simplify layouts, if I like, it took me forever to figure out the lettering. Oh my gosh. I'm happy with my lettering now, uh, but like it was finding the right size text mm-hmm. and kind of pulling back on my desire, my deep, deep academic desire to overwrite everything was really hard. Yeah, because that bubble only has so much space. <laughs> only so much space. And so yeah. I think that was uh, that was my, my comics boot camp. Yeah, I started off, I, I did start off at a really solid place. I, I do like the first project I did was How to Draw a Black Guy. And since then, I, I've continued to constantly make my deadlines and do a bunch of other projects that, that have been amazing. Um, actually, there is one project that I wanted to touch on. I, I know that we're mad over and I'm making your life so much harder than it has to be with that edit. <laughs> go off. Yeah, no, 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 no worries. If you, if you go to my website, cmcampbellart.com, of course, you could go to the store and check out what uh, what buy what I'm selling. But also, there is a link to a space called Draw Breath. It is a section that's dedicated to the collaborations of me and my friend Adam Roberts, who's currently incarcerated in Fishkill Prison. And we've been working on projects together for the past two years and are continuing to do so. Um, and so, in addition to the two projects uh, that I'm working on where it's an issue every year in CXC. I'm also going to be continuing to make projects with Adam Roberts, and I'm hoping to get physical printed copies of uh, the work that both he does solo and he and I both do together so that uh, I could have uh, copies of that available for whenever the next tabling event is. So that is another ambition of mine. His work is amazing. 
yeah, uh, go to the site, check out Draw Breath. It is like this is this this uh, you want to talk discipline. This guy, he is knocking it out of the park, just kind of banging out pages. I just got a script from him like yesterday that he's asking me to review. We just trade books uh, and, and recommendations. And oh, we're coming it, two, two and a half years of friendship. Yeah. Amazing guy. Amazing artist. Check out his work. Just want to make sure to throw that out there. Hell yeah. Well, that kind of segues into how we usually wrap things up. Where can people find your work online and, you know, keep up with you besides that? Uh, you could uh, follow me on the gram at uh, Mr. Corporal Craig, M-R-C-P-L-C-R-A-I-G. Uh, you could also find me at cmcampbellart.com. And if you're uh, looking to see some of the more uh, heady work that I've done, I've done some curation work in the past, done some painting in the past. You could check out uh, the website craighoo.com and you can read my artist statement. It's hilarious. Uh, it's good. It's, it's tight. It is so tight, but it, it is definitely an artist statement. I love, I love artist statements. They're the, the, <laughs> they're hilarious. Uh, but check it out. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I think that's it. I don't really tweet that much. I wish I had your Twitter game. Like I see uh, Ben Toll. He, I, he's one of my coworkers. He, his Twitter game is so tight. Emmy Guinness. Oh, I, I, I want to tweet. I just, <laughs> it's a bad, I need to place. work on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not great, but, uh, but I, I feel like I know how to use it. You got to game the system. Yeah. I feel like I'm walking into rooms where people are doing drugs and I'm like, what are y'all doing in here? And they're like, we're tweeting. Get out of here. Craig. You don't want no part of this. I'm like, but I want to tweet. No, Craig, you don't want to tweet. You don't want to be like us. <laughs> That's the best description I heard of that shit for real. Pretty spot on. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's like that scene in, uh, what, what was that? Dewey with the fucking Johnny Dewey Cash. Cash. Dewey Cash. Yes, Walk thank hard. you. It yeah, is, yeah, Walk Hard. Yeah, it is yeah. that scene in Walk Hard. Where- it is that exact scene. <laughs> Get out of here, Dewey. What are y'all doing in here? It's called cocaine, and you don't want no part of this shit. Cocaine? What's it do? It turns all your bad feelings into good feelings. It's a nightmare. Awesome. Well, Craig, thanks so much for uh, talking to us. I know we meant to do this uh, over at the camp, but we ran out of time. Oh, it's totally cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll run into each other on the road. Sober. Oh, yeah. Remote. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> That's true. It's be the only camp-related interview we've done sober now that I think about it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, great having on you in the show, man. Hopefully, we'll we'll cross paths again real soon. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Honestly, I imagine it must be an uh, interesting experience because since you have a podcast, I'll be hearing from the both of you for a long, long time. And it'll just be one of those things where it'll be like I talked oh, yeah. to you yesterday when I see yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. I get that. Oh, yeah, I, it's a, it sounds like a magical feeling. I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's magical. Cool. I think that's good. <laughs> yeah. Right on. Well, yeah, Craig, right. thanks so much for coming on. And uh, listeners, as always, you know, stay gutter.